Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, God bless you all this morning. We're grateful that you're here with us as we worship the Lord together. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we're especially glad you're here. So thank you for coming. And we pray that uh, you'll be blessed and encouraged uh, through your time here with us this morning. Uh, This is our 24th and next to the last uh, message in our study of the book of 1 Peter. Uh, We're kind of slowing down a bit here near the end uh, because Peter presents some some really key topics that I think it's important for us to to drill down into. Uh, Last time we looked at just three verses and just two verses this morning, but uh, Lord willing, we plan to finish the book next time. But if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, those two verses will be our text for this morning. I've titled this message this morning, Speak of the Devil. Uh, let me read uh, verses 8 and 9 for us. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired and errant word. I was reading a book uh, sometime back by Max Lucado. It's called Unshakable Hope. And in the book, he uh, tells a story about uh, how on July 21st of 1861, uh, Washingtonians rode out in horses and their buggies to Manassas uh, to witness the Union soldiers, uh, what they thought would be bringing an end to a very short rebellion. And their intent was to go out there, all these people from Washington, D.C., to sit on blankets and um, eat their chicken and kind of cheer the troops on from a distance. And they came out there in, in stylish carriages and buggies and on horseback and on, on foot. And uh, they came out there to observe all this. But then Lucado says this, It wasn't long before reality rushed in. With the sound of gunfire, the sight of blood, and the screams of wounded soldiers, people soon realized this was no picnic. Fathers grabbed their children and husbands called for their wives. They jumped into their wagons and up onto their horses. Some were caught in a stampede of retreating Union troops. One spectator, a congressman from New York, was caught by Confederate soldiers and kept prisoner for nearly six months. Then Lucado says this, That was the last time onlookers took picnic baskets to a battlefield. Or was it? Could it be that we make a similar mistake? Could it be that we embrace a similar false assumption? Is it possible that we today do what the Washingtonians did back then? Well, I think in far too many cases today and far too often we do. Uh, Tragically, many professing Christians today are unaware that they're in a war. Uh, They're like the the spectators at uh, the Battle of Manassas, and when reality finally sets in, it's too late. They're unaware that for a believer in Jesus Christ, life is not a a playground or a picnic ground, but life for us is a battleground. Uh, The Bible tells us that every believer in Jesus Christ is locked in a relentless spiritual battle against a powerful, malevolent enemy that the Bible uh, calls Satan. In his his book, I Never Thought I'd See the Day, David Jeremiah says this. This is good. He says, two things are happening today I never thought I'd live to see. First, spiritual warfare is getting much more intense, and Satan is becoming much more real. Second, too many Christians are not taking spiritual warfare seriously or even believing such a war is going on. 
These two factors taken together mean we have a crisis on our hands. When the danger increases and the awareness decreases, an alarm needs to be sounded to prevent disaster. What I would say this morning is thankfully in our text this morning, Peter is sounding the alarm uh, for us. And we'll be wise to listen carefully to what he has to say to us this morning because really in large measure, our spiritual survival depends upon it. Because the Bible tells us that satanic attacks and demonic activity is going to increase and intensify as the end of the age draws near. If you read the book of Revelation, and it predicts that satanic activity on earth is going to mushroom during that final seven-year time of tribulation that will immediately precede of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not in that time period yet, but as the end time rapidly approaches, I think we can expect the uh, threat of spiritual warfare to ramp up all around us. The, the level's going to ramp up. I mean, Satan knows the Bible. Um, he knows the signs of the times, and surely he knows uh, that his time is short. So I think there's never been a time that's more critical for believers in Jesus Christ to know our enemy and how to be victorious over him than the time in which we live. Now, why does the Apostle Peter, near the end of this letter, bring up the topic of the devil? I mean, why speak of the devil at this point? Well, if you'll remember, 1 Peter was written to, Jew, to believers, primarily Jewish believers, I think, living in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It's the early A.D. 60s, and they're being persecuted for their faith. It's not risen yet to the level of martyrdom or being killed for their faith, but they're being mocked and maligned and reviled and slandered uh, for their faith. And as Peter brings this letter to a close, he wants them and he wants us to know that the ultimate power behind persecution is actually Satan himself. In fact, the end of verse 9, I mean, he mentions Satan in verse 8, and the end of verse 9, he mentions the suffering that believers are suffering throughout the whole world. So Peter wants his readers to know that there's something bigger than just human opposition that's behind the persecution in the world, that Satan is the real enemy we face. So the real force behind all persecution of Christians in the world is actually Satan. So as you read the book of 1 Peter, it's kind of like Satan has been lurking in the background in this letter. He's kind of been hiding in the shadows. When we get near the end of the book here, Peter's going to bring him out in the open and going to unmask him. And so I've got three points this morning in your outline for us to do that as we go through this text. I want to look at the adversary, that, that is, who is Satan? Uh, the attack, what does he do? And then the answer, what do we do uh, to combat uh, his attacks in our lives? So let's begin here with the adversary or who he is. Now, you'll notice very simply in verse 8, Peter calls our enemy, your adversary, the devil. Now, I didn't just say an adversary or the adversary, but is your adversary. We have a, a personal adversary who is against us in our lives. And most of you know this, but our great arch enemy has a lot of different aliases in the Bible. Uh, the most common one is the word Satan. That's used more than any other. It comes from a Hebrew word uh, that means adversary. So he's our adversary, and he mentions your adversary, the devil. But Satan is our adversary. The second most used word for him is the devil, which we see in our passage here. And it's the Greek word diabolos. It means a, a slanderer or an accuser. 
Um, he's also called the evil one, the father of lies, the great dragon, the serpent, uh, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. In one place, he's even called uh, the god of this world or the god of this age. But by any name, whatever name he goes by in Scripture, he is a dangerous, destructive deceiver. Now, nevertheless, the vast majority of people don't believe in a real, literal devil. Um, increasingly today, there's skepticism about Satan. Uh, there's denial of the devil. In fact, it's staggering to me, but that includes most professing Christians. Most Christians today believe Satan is just a mythical figure or some symbol of evil. Uh, Barna Research did this uh, poll not long ago, and 60% of professing born-again Christians agree strongly or somewhat strongly that Satan is not a living being but just a symbol of evil. And 35% of born-again Christians believe Satan is a literal being, and the remainder aren't sure what they believe about the existence of Satan. But about a third of people who profess to be born-again Christians believe that Satan is a literal, a real being. Uh, for the most part today, people believe that, 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 that some idea of Satan or demons is just kind of this antiquated, outdated idea that's just a leftover relic uh, from back in the Middle Ages. Um, for most people today, I would say believing in beings like Satan and demons is embarrassing to kind of the modern, sophisticated mind. I was reading a book um, about a year ago by Os Guinness called Impossible People. Os Guinness is a great observer of our times, a wonderful Christian man, a great thinker. And he describes our secular culture today as a world without windows. In other words, if people can't see it, then it's not real. So that the world today increasingly is a world without windows, an enclosed world where the unseen is unreal. And he cautions Christians about that by, by warning us that the world that we can't see is just as real as the world we can see. And as believers, we live in a world with windows where God allows us to see in the unseen world uh, that surrounds us. But this idea that Satan doesn't exist plays right into his hands because I think he does his worst work when no one's noticing him or recognizing he even exists. Because at, at his heart, Satan is a counterfeiter and he's a camouflager. Uh, Vance Havner, the great Baptist preacher years ago, said this, God is the great I am, Satan is the great I am not. And he's never happier than when he's convinced people that he's non-existent. So this current skepticism we see about Satan in our culture just plays right into his hands. Because if you can't diagnose the source of your problem, then you can't fight it. And so Satan is glad to have the source of the problem go undiagnosed so people don't even believe he exists. So he can just go on about his business unheeded, unhindered, and unchecked. Satan wants to make your life and my life a mess, but he wants to keep his name out of it if he can. I like what D.L. Moody said. He said, I believe Satan exists for two reasons. First, the Bible says so, and second, I've done business with him. And I think all of us here probably would, would say that as well. But even Peter, as he's writing this, Peter had done business with Satan, hadn't he? I mean, remember back in Luke 22, the night before Jesus died on the cross? Peter's bragging about everything he's going to do. And what did Jesus say? Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I'm going to pray for you that your faith won't fail. When wheat was sifted, he took the head of that grain and you took it apart piece by piece. 
Satan is, Jesus is telling Peter, Satan has demanded permission to take you apart one piece at a time. But I'm going to pray for you that your faith won't fail. And we know Peter got taken apart one piece at a time. He denied uh, the Lord three times. So Peter knew uh, that, that Satan is a real being from his own experience. Uh, whenever people bring up the idea about Satan not being real, I like this. It's kind of a corny old story, but I like it about a, a boxer who stumbles back to the corner. He's bruised and bleeding, and his trainer's splashing water on him and rubbing him down. He said, Man, you're doing great, Rocky. He says, Your opponent hadn't laid a hand on you. And the half dazed boxer look up and says, Well, if my opponent hasn't laid a glove on me, you better watch the referee because somebody out there's beating the daylights out of me. And uh, I like that because if there's not a real devil, then there's somebody like him who's constantly out there stirring up the mayhem and the evil and the chaos uh, that we see out in this world today. Uh, Let me just give you quickly this morning, I don't want to belabor this, but I'm going to give you just quick, uh, six quick reasons why I believe Satan is a real literal being. The first one will be a little longer. The other ones are fairly, fairly brief. But turn in your Bible back to Ezekiel 28. I want to show you something here, and I think you'll probably end up going back and reading something in this chapter uh, later this week. I'm sure you'll find this fascinating. So I just want to kind of give you a little introduction to it. But back in Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel is addressing a leader called the Prince of Tyre. Tyre is a, was a city in modern-day Lebanon. So he addresses the leader of the Prince of Tyre. But when you get down to verse 12, he begins to address the King of Tyre. And many Bible commentators, and I would agree with this, believe that the King of Tyre is Satan, who was the power behind the human ruler of Tyre. And the reason we say that is, if you look at uh, verse 12 of Ezekiel 28, it says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and uh, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Look on down in verse, the end of verse 13. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. So if this is talking about Satan before he fell, he's a created being, an angel who was a cherub. And many believe that Satan was like the worship leader in heaven that that, uh, gave the, the, the worship and the glory to God. But then in verse 15, the second half of that verse, this is the closest we come anywhere in the Bible to finding the origin of evil. There it is. Notice, until unrighteousness was found in you. That's the beginning of sin in the universe. For the first time, you have a will that's contrary to the will of God. And then it goes on down and says, in verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by the reason of your splendor. Now, we know that Satan falls here into sin, but he also leads a coup or a revolt against God. In verse 16, it says, by the abundance of your trade, you're internally filled with violence. That word trade has to do with the idea of trafficking. And what this probably means is that Satan then went around and trafficked around heaven, slandering and bad-mouthing God and trying to get others of the angelic host to join him in his revolt. And we know from Revelation 12, 4, that a third of them joined him. It says, the, the tail of the great serpent swept a third of the stars uh, from heaven. 
So this is a sobering picture of, of the fall of Satan and the entrance of sin into the universe. Now, people will often ask, well, when did Satan fall? When did this happen? Well, there's different views, and again, people have different thoughts about it. I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but I put the fall of Satan somewhere be, between the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 3. We know by the beginning of the third chapter of Genesis that Satan exists, that he's fallen. But we don't know when before that he fell. But there's a signal to me in, in, in Genesis 1.31. It says at the end of the, the days of creation, God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. So everything was good. Um, every animal was good. Every tree was good. Every angel was good. So sometime after that statement in Genesis 1.31 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, Satan led this coup against God. And he is cast out of heaven. And all of that gives me the indication he is a real being. He's a real personal being who's created by God. The second thing is the entire plot of the book of Genesis and really the whole Bible depends on the reality of Satan. When he first appears in Genesis 3, he doesn't go off the scene till near the end of Revelation 20. So his fiendish career spans the whole history of the Bible. And uh, he's the great antagonist, really, if you will, in the biblical story. And so for that reason, the whole plot of the biblical story rests on the existence of this being named Satan. Uh, number three, the most detailed passage about Satan is, in the Old Testament is Job chapters 1 and 2. We'll look at that in a few minutes, but I just want to point this out. Those are the first inspired words ever written. Job was probably the first book uh, written from our, our Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And when you read Job 1, and we'll look there in a few moments, Satan is appearing before God and carrying on a long conversation with God. So again, he's not just some mythical figure, some force. He's a real being. Uh, number four, say, uh, Jesus speaks of the devil as an actual person who exists. 25 times in the gospel, Jesus speaks of the devil. Three times he calls him the ruler of this world. And Jesus squared off against Satan for 40 days in the wilderness. Satan tempted him, and they carried on conversations with one another. And Jesus once said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So Jesus believed in a real devil, and so did Peter, so did Paul, so did Jude, so did the other writers of the New Testament. Another thing is that Satan possesses the, the, uh, the attributes of personality, of being a person. People tell us that to be a, a person, you have to have intellect and will and emotion. When you read about Satan in the Bible, he schemes, he deceives, he communicates, um, he tempts, he displays pride, um, he knows information about things. And, and personal pronouns are used for Satan uh, throughout Scripture. In fact, even in, uh, in our passage in 1 Peter 5 and verse 9, it says, but resist him firm in your faith. It doesn't say resist it, but resist him. So he's, he's consistently spoken of as a person. And then finally, uh, Satan someday will be cast in the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. So he's a real person, a real being who's going to be abandoned by God and finally cast into the lake of fire. So we could go on and on with these things, but, but make no mistake, the, de the devil is real. He is as real of a person as you are and as I am. 
And he's called in the scripture, your adversary, the devil. He is against us in every uh, conceivable way. Now that brings us to the attack. What does he do? Uh, We could call this also the assault or the ambush. Now, Peter's description of Satan's activity is very concise, but it's very chilling. All he says is, he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, Satan is constantly on the prowl. He's relentlessly roaming about the earth. He's seeking and stalking his prey. And we see this back in the book of Job. I told you we were going to go back there. And so turn back to Job chapters 1 and 2, and I want to show you something there. And again, you might want to mark that in your Bible because you're going to probably want to go back and read more about this after we look at it. I'm sure it's going to pique your curiosity. But again, Job's probably the oldest book written, and we're not six verses into the book of Job, and we have a mention of Satan. So again, it's a, he's a, a key character in the biblical story and the narrative. Look at Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to pre- present themselves before the Lord. Now, the sons of God here is a reference to the angelic host. That's, that's what that term is used for consistently in the Old Testament. So they came to present themselves before God, and Satan also came among them. Now, today, a lot of people, if you were to ask them if they did believe Satan was a real person, and you ask them, where is he, most people would say he's in hell, right? That's what you see pictures down there with his pitchfork and little red suit, and he's down there, you know, burning in the flames in the lake of fire. Uh, But the Bible would tell us Satan has never been to hell, and he's not there now. Um, He currently also, notice, has right now currently some limited access to heaven because he appears there with the angelic host in heaven uh, before God. Now, the Bible tells us, and again, we won't have time to look at all this in detail, but in the future during the tribulation period, in Revelation 12, it tells us that at some point in time in the tribulation, probably around the midpoint, Satan is going to be permanently expelled from heaven. So he'll have no more access from that point on. And finally, in the end at Revelation 20, verse 10, he's going to be cast in, uh, into the lake of fire. And even when Satan gets cast into the lake of fire or into hell, he's not going to be in charge there. A lot of people have this idea, well, Satan will be running things down in heaven. No, he's not going to be in charge there. He's going to be in chains. But currently... He is like a roaring lion moving about, seeking whom he may devour. Look at Job 1.7. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Now, there's several interesting things about this, but one is when God says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan doesn't say, well, who's Job? I don't know about him. He knows him. He's been eyeing this man. Notice he's been studying him. He's been stalking him and trying to get at him. 
But he says, you've got a hedge built around him uh, on every side. So he's been sizing Job up, Satan has, as he's roamed about the earth. And you'll notice here also that true to his name, the devil slanders Job. He says, does, does Job fear God for nothing? So he's slandering him and, and accusing him. So Satan is roaming about the earth, and he knew everything about Job. He'd been eyeing him, and he'd been sizing him up, and he's doing the same thing with us as well. Now, back in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, you'll notice that it says that Satan is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, that word devour literally means to gulp down. So Satan is looking constantly for prey that he can gulp down. I mean, that's, that's how graphic it is. One man says this. He says, Satan is hungry, and you and I are on his menu. <laughs> Satan wants to capture you, and he wants to destroy you spiritually. And let me just say this. He wants to do the same thing to your marriage. He wants to do the same thing to your children and to your grandchildren, and he wants to do the same thing to churches that exalt the name of Christ and, and that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is not messing around. He's not playing around. I mean, he is an evil fiend, and the Bible says he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. One man says it like this, Satan wants to drag unbelievers to hell and make life hell for believers. But he wants to destroy our testimony and our hope and, and our holiness. And he, he does this in all kinds of ways. And again, this could be another whole sermon on what Satan does, but let me just mention a few things. He manufactures and promotes false doctrine and false religion. He incites persecution against believers. We see that right here in our text this morning. He accuses and slanders God's people. We saw that in Job chapter 1. He hinders and opposes the work of God's people. I mean, he tries to raise doubt in our minds, and he's having a field day with that uh, today in our culture. I mean, he shoots his fiery darts of, of doubt in, into people's minds to cause them to doubt the truths of God and the Bible. I mean, he tempts us. That's how he appears in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. But on and on we could go, but Satan is our enemy who's against us in every conceivable way. Now, let me just mention a couple of important points about Satan's activity, though, that, that, I, that I think are important to keep in mind. One is, most of us are never probably the direct target of Satan himself. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is a finite being, a created being. He can't be everywhere at once. So when people say, well, you know, the devil did this to me and the devil did that to me, it probably wasn't the devil if something happened. It was one of his underlings, one of the demons. Because Satan can't be everywhere at once, and I don't want to flatter myself by thinking Satan has his attention on me. He probably has bigger fish to fry. But Satan is a spirit being, and he can travel from one place to another, I'm sure, very quickly. But what he does, since he can't be everywhere at once, is he carries out much of his activity through his emissaries who are called demons. And those are the fallen angels that revolted and fell with him uh, from heaven. And this host of evil minions assist Satan, and they're arrayed against us. It's what uh, the book of uh, Ephesians says in Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
And those are probably different hierarchies in Satan's organization of demons. You have rulers and powers and world forces and spiritual forces. So, since Satan's not omnipresent, most of the time what you and I are dealing with are demonic spirits. Fiendish and powerful, yes, but not Satan himself. Secondly, we need to remember that Satan can only act with God's permission. Satan is powerful, but he's not all-powerful. Satan's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once, and he's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. Only God is omnipotent. So Satan is a real threat, but he's a limited threat, and he can only do what God permits him to do. I mean, back in Job chapter 1, he said, God, you built a hedge around Job, and so God had to give Satan permission to do what he did um, against Job. In Luke chapter 8, the demons, the legion of demons, Jesus was going to cast out of the demoniac. Those demons said to Jesus, they implored him to permit them to enter the swine. So they had to get permission from Jesus. So Satan is not sovereign. He's not omnipotent, and he's not an equal to God. In fact, Satan's not even a counterpart to God. Satan is a created being. He's finite. God is infinite. I like the way Martin Luther put it years ago. He would often say, always remember, the devil is God's devil. He's under the, the power and the control and the authority of God. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Hebrews 2, 14 says, through death, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So the devil is a real foe, but we have to remember the devil is a defeated foe. There's a story, some of you probably heard this old story about a, a chess master, and he was uh, walking through an art gallery in Europe, and he came across a, a painting of Satan and a young man playing a, a match of chess against one another. And the name of the painting was Checkmate. And it's clear that the devil had checkmated this young man because the face on the devil is filled with glee and the face of the young man is filled with panic. As this chess master looked at that, he, he thought something was wrong. He wanted to meet with the artist. So the artist agreed to meet with him, and they, they took the painting down, and the chess master had brought a, a chess board and the pieces and set them up exactly as they were in the painting. And he said, you titled the painting Checkmate, but that implies the young man has no more moves to make. He reached over the board and moved the young man's king one space, and he said, now the devil is checkmated. And looked at the young man in the painting and said, young man, your enemy made a fatal miscalculation. You don't have to lose. You win. And it may be that some of you here this morning in your life feel like you're checkmated. It may be uh, in your health. It may be in uh, your marriage. Um, it may be in your finances or your career or any other of a myriad of problems. You may feel checkmated today. But the great news, the good news of the Bible is if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, that you're going to win. Your, your champion, the Lord Jesus, has defeated the enemy. He's made the, the final move, if you will, through his death and resurrection and announced checkmate really to the devil. And all you and I have to do is play out the rest of the game, if you will, under his guiding hand and claim our victory in him. And remember that we don't fight for victory as believers. We fight from victory, a victory that's already been achieved by Jesus Christ. Now, that's a perfect segue here into the final point here, which is the answer. What do we do to gain victory over Satan and demons? Well, I just said the victory's already been achieved. 
But this victory, though, has to be applied by us in everyday life. And Peter lays out three very simple, beautiful things that you and I do to apply this victory that's been achieved for us in our daily lives. And the first one in verse 8 is to be ready. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. In other words, be ready and be on the alert to Satan's tactics. Now, when it comes to Satan, there's always two extremes. You meet people sometimes that are obsessed with the devil, and they see a demon behind every bush, and they have an unhealthy preoccupation with Satan and demons. Then you'll meet other people who are believers who could just totally overlook Satan and act as if he doesn't even exist. And I would just say both of those extremes are dangerous and detrimental. We need to, to strike a balance within those two. And by the way, I would just say this, if any of you are struggling with having a kind of an obsession on Satan and demons, our focus is to be on Christ, not upon Satan. We're to live Christ-centered, Christ-focused lives. That's to be the center for us. As I noted earlier, though, Satan's hope is to be ignored and underestimated and overlooked. Uh, But you and I don't want to fall into that trap. We need to be on guard and be on the outlook for him. And here's something to think about. I think you and I would shudder if we knew how many times Satan and demons pass by us in the invisible world around us as they're roaming about the earth. I mean, think about how many times they pass by us. We, we would probably shudder if we knew that. Think about if you were at the Oklahoma City Zoo and they came over the public address system and says, we have an important announcement to make, our large... <clears throat> male lion has just escaped his enclosure. Now, what would you be doing? Well, first of all, you'd be looking for the nearest exit or the nearest building you could get into, but I promise you, until you got there, your head would be on a swivel, right? I mean, there's a lion roaming about, and you don't know where he is. Yet the Bible tells us the same thing about our lives spiritually. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion who's roaming about, seeking someone to gulp down. But very few Christians, I think, take that as seriously as we should. J.C. Ryle said this years ago, the saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, its watchings and strugglings, its agonies and anxieties, its battles and contests, of all this, they appear to know nothing at all. Well, I don't want that to be true of any of us. And so the Bible warns us, don't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. Be on the lookout. I think Peter's mind when he's writing this probably went back to the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus say three times to him and the disciples? Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Jesus goes back three times and they're asleep every time. So Peter's warning us here, be on the lookout. The second answer to the attack of our adversary is to resist. Notice verse 9, but resist him. It means to, to stand against or to oppose. And that's always what we're told to do when it comes to Satan and demons. Ephesians 6.10 says, stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Uh, James chapter 4 and verse 7 says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will Uh, flee from you. By the way, let me say something about that passage in James. Notice what he says, submit yourself to the Lord. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A lot of people are trying to resist the devil who've never submitted to the Lord. And it's not going to work. The, the first key thing for you and me is to submit our lives to the Lord. Every part of our lives, every aspect of our lives, every crack and crevice of our lives. To submit everything we are to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we do that, then we're able to resist the devil and he will, will flee from us. That's a very important point for us uh, to, keep, to keep in mind as we uh, think about resisting Satan. Another way we resist Satan is by humbling ourselves. Remember back up in verse 6, it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So it's interesting, the preceding context right before this is talking about being humble. And what was the main sin of Satan? It was pride. So one way we resist the devil, I believe, is by living a life and cultivating a heart of humility. Because I think it's pride that throws the door open to the devil in our lives. Jonathan Edwards said, nothing sets a man as much out of the devil's reach as humility. Nothing that will set you out of the devil's reach as much as a humility. So we need to be humble. Uh, we need to submit ourselves to the Lord. I like the old saying, somebody said, that we must bow before the Lord before we can stand before the devil. And so you and I need to be submissive to the Lord. But then notice he says, resist him firm in your faith. Now the word your has been added there. It's just really, literally firm in faith. So it could mean like our personal faith, or it could mean the faith like the, the, the truth that's revealed in Scripture that's embodied in the Bible. And that's the way I tend to take this. He's saying, resist him firm in the faith. In other words, in the doctrine and the revealed truth uh, that we have in the Word of God. Um, how did Jesus resist Satan three times in the wilderness? Three times he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He resisted him firm in the faith the truth that's revealed in Scripture. And by the way, that's why we teach the Bible here at Faith Bible Church. We don't just talk about the Bible, we make it a focus. Because your spiritual survival and mine is at stake. And I want our people in this church to be strong believers who can stand strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That we know the faith that's been once delivered to us by the Lord. Another way we resist Satan, and I'm not going to go into this this morning because it's too lengthy, it's a whole other sermon, but it's to put on the armor of God. You can go read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. As we put on the armor of God, we're able to stand firm and we're able to resist the devil. But the final answer to the attack of our adversary is recognition. The very end of verse 9, he says, knowing that the same experience of sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren that are in the world. In other words, Peter reminds us that our struggling and persecution and difficulty is not unique. We aren't alone in our suffering. Uh, there, there's confidence and, and comfort that comes from knowing that you're not fighting alone. And he says, look, all the other believers all over the world, they're enduring the same kind of suffering that you're enduring. So as believers, we share that in common. Uh, there's a great army of saints stretching down through, throughout history right up to the present day that are with us, if you will, in this relentless battle. Uh, we stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm with believers across the globe in the same spiritual battle, enduring the same suffering, 
uh, facing the same obstacles, but armed with the same spiritual resources that God has given to us. But it's a source of strength, Peter's saying, to know that you're not isolated, that you're not alone. And of course, in the world today, there's a spectrum of suffering. I mean, here in America, there's a there's a level of persecution today in our culture, again, we've talked about, of mocking and reviling and slander. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world that lose their jobs. They can't find employment. Uh, their their property's taken away. They may even be killed and martyred for their faith. So there's certainly this spectrum of suffering, but he's just simply saying wherever believers are in the world, there's some level of persecution they're going to endure. And when we know that and, and, and we're shoulder to shoulder with one another, it gives us hope and encouragement and strength. Uh, the universality of suffering unites and strengthens God's people together. Chuck Swindoll says it like this, we're a platoon of soldiers watching each other's backs with a victory assured by the power of God. And I, I pray that people in other parts of the world who are undergoing much greater suffering than we are can draw encouragement from the fact that while we're suffering here, we're trying to stand firm uh, just as they are. Well, we've talked here this morning about this lion that we need to be alert to that's prowling about, but I want to remind all of us this morning that we have a lion who is our champion. The book of Revelation calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's the lion that became a lamb who came and died for us so that we can have that victory over Satan and we can have our sins forgiven. I mentioned to you all uh, sometime back that Cheryl and I early this summer went to Germany and we spoke there and then went to uh, Paris for a week. And while I was in Paris, you hear a lot about Napoleon when you're there. So I did a lot of reading about Napoleon and I got a biography about Napoleon and began to read it and uh, was really fascinated by his life, learned much that I didn't know. But one thing I found out that's a, that's a powerful story is it was said of Napoleon that when he was trying to conquer the, the world of his day, really his world, which was Europe and, and on into Russia, he spread out a map on a table. And he was talking to his lieutenants who were gathered there around him. And he said, men, if it were not for that red spot, I could conquer the world. And the red spot he pointed to was the British Isles. And of course, ultimately, it was uh, the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo and other forces there that ultimately defeated Napoleon. But he, he pointed to the British Isles and said, if it wasn't for that red spot, I could conquer the world. And I thought about that and how really Satan, if he was gathered together with his minions, could say the same thing if a map of the world were spread out before him. Satan could say, I could rule the world if it wasn't for that red spot. But that red spot is Calvary. It's the place where Jesus died for us and where he rose again. And because of that red spot, because of the death of Jesus for us, we can have hope. And it's because of that red spot that Satan has been defeated and our sins have been paid for. So that red spot is what makes all the difference for you and for me in our spiritual battle. We don't have to live in fear of the enemy. We need only enter into the spiritual battle in which we've been called, be aware of its reality, its subtlety, be armed with the truth that the ultimate victory against Satan has been achieved. And it's all because of that red spot. It's because of what our lion who became a lamb, the Lord Jesus, did for us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and we thank you for that red spot. We pray that we would take our stand there and hang our hope completely upon what was accomplished there by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Him and believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior and claimed that red spot for themselves, I pray that they would do that right now, right where they sit. Hang all their hope on Jesus for all of eternity. Father, for those of us who know You, I pray that we'll submit our lives to You, that we'll realize we have to bow before You before we can stand before the enemy. There's areas of our lives that need to be submitted to your Lordship. I pray that we do it right now this morning. And Father, we look to you for our brothers and sisters around the world who are undergoing much more serious suffering than we can ever imagine. We pray that you'll strengthen them and you'll encourage them and that maybe them just knowing that there's people here in our country who love them and pray for them will be a great encouragement uh, to them today. So, Father, help us all, all the body of Christ, wherever we are today, scattered around the world, to stand strong in your might and in your power as we await your coming again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as we are dismissed. Again, if you're visiting with us, uh, if you go out these doors on the left side of the lobby, there's a welcome center. Uh, There's some folks there that would love to give you some information about our church and uh, get acquainted with you. Um, one announcement I've been meaning to make for several weeks now, and I've, kept, I've been forgetting, but in, in 2021, I was just thinking far out there, but the end of May, early June of 2021, we're going to take a Reformation trip, um, and we're going to go to Germany, primarily Germany and Switzerland. Uh, Dr. John Hanna from Dallas Seminary and his wife are going with, my, with me and my wife on the trip, and he's going to be doing a lot, lot of the teaching, most of it. I mean, he's a you know, world expert in Martin Luther and the Reformation. So anyway, he's going to be joining us, and we can only take one bus. We have space for about 40 people. So if you want to go, you can get online and sign up for that. It's a long way out, I know, but we're making those plans. So anyway, I wanted to mention that uh, to all of you here uh, this morning. Well, let's bow our heads now uh, for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing upon us. Father, I pray that you'll send us out uh, today from this place and and this week to wherever we'll go. Uh, Father, send us out with uh, submissive hearts, lives submitted to you. And Father, help us to be on the lookout and to be alert uh, so that we can come against the schemes of the enemy that would try to destroy our lives and our families. So Father, send us out in your power and your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.